Unlocking Your World of Creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Mark introduces you to some of the world's leading creative talent from publishing, film, music, restaurants, medical research, and more. You'll discover how to tap into your most original thinking, how to organize your ideas, and most of all, how to make the connections and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity. Welcome back, everybody, to Unlocking Your World of Creativity, the podcast for creative professionals. And who doesn't want to be happier? Is there more to being happy than just sort of a pat on the back and an encouraging word? Are there scientific laws to happiness? And that's the subject with our guest today, Dr. Rob Carpenter. Rob, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's a delight to be on, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Rob is the author of The 48 Laws of Happiness, but he's also the on-air host of a great television series called The Harvard Health TV. And as I was looking at your bio, Dr. Rob, you've got so many other creative pursuits, uh, film, articles, writing, <laughs> classes, <laughs> academies. You've got a lot of creative plates spinning, don't you? Absolutely. It's always fun to really just be able to express what's in your heart to be able to put out into the world. And for me, I never knew I was a creative probably until I made the decision to consciously be one. I was always very artistic. I was always very innovative in the business sense. And then I said, wait a second, I actually have something that I think people might want. And so it took a minute to sort of transition myself from more traditional nine to five roles to sort of some more of these creative roles. But it was a lot of fun when I did. And now I'm just happy to push lots of different ideas forward that hopefully can benefit people's lives. And I think people, when they say, oh, I didn't really know what I, I was that creative or not, we can all relate to that, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, back in your educational background, you have a master's in public policy analysis and administration, <laughs> you know, words Absolutely. that people don't always equate with creativity. But I think you've turned it on its head, haven't you? Absolutely. What's interesting is I did a diagnostic test, Mark, and it showed that I'm 50% left-brained, 50% right-brained. And so I'm logical and I'm creative. And I think that's what's really helped me in terms of really being able to focus my creativity and produce with it. Because we all know those creatives who are, I know people who are so much more creative than me, but they've never actually written a book or directed a movie or put their creativity to work in useful ways. And so I'm just really blessed to have a brain that kind of is sort of semi-organized and mechanical and army-like, but also at the same time, sort of seeking new ideas and novel ways of expressing them. And so I think once I took that diagnostic test, it sort of helped give me the confidence to say, wait a second, I at least have some vision of creativity according to somebody's random test. And so it helped me kind of push forward beyond, you know, some of the more limitations of my academic training. Mm -hmm. I mean, fortunately, you know, I think fortunately, unfortunately, your training kind of helps focus you and helps put you on a certain path. But at the same time, you have to have self-education. For me, the fortunate part is my self-education always outweighed my traditional academic education. So mm -hmm. for example, when I wrote The 40 Hours of Happiness, I was in my doctoral program at the University of Southern California. And I took time off of that program because I needed to be creative. I needed to express myself. I needed to say something. I needed to have fun. And so I took a, a, a month to six weeks off to write the book, which is four and some on pages, because I was just eking to let something out that wasn't sort of trying to conform me to a certain type of thinking. And I think for a lot of people, their educational training or their workplaces 
or maybe expectations of family or friends try to get them to conform to patterns of, of thinking or patterns of speaking or patterns of decision-making, patterns of behavior. And so for me, I sort of just started to eschew that little by little, baby step by baby step, first with a diagnostic test and then with sort of meeting more creative friends. And it sort of just kind of metastasized over mm -hmm. there to sort of having this full embrace of, you know what, I actually am creative. I'm gonna put myself out there. I have no idea what I'm doing. And then when I started to get some of the success behind it, I said, wait a second, maybe this is what I'm called to do. And maybe all of those prior experiences in the nine to fives, I was a professor, for example, which is an interesting nine to five, but it was still very rigid in terms of its structure. And so uh, maybe all those past experiences of, of being in, in, a, in a, start, a professor role or in a startup role or in training that I had helped sort of me think about the world in a particular kind of way that I realized by the time I became a creative was unique and was idiosyncratic, which was the foundation of what I needed. So I think for anybody listening, it's regardless of whatever background they've had or whatever they're doing now, they can take their experiences there and use that to build off of in terms of having a creative career or creative projects, creative endeavors. So for me, that's what kind of helped transition me but definitely wasn't pre-planned. It just sort of happened. <laughs> yeah, as it often does. Well, mm -hmm. listeners, we're going to be getting into Dr. Rob's book, The 48 Laws of Happiness. You've got a very compelling personal story too that I don't want to miss out uh, telling our listeners about. But this idea of am I creative or not? Uh, you were describing for yourself, but it's not just theoretical. Now you also advise people like athletes and celebrities mm -hmm. and you know business leaders and even just other everyday people about how they can become uh, better, you know, more complete whole-brained thinkers. What's your Absolutely. experience in working with people in all those different walks of life? I think for me, I had to live it first. I had to live in those various walks of life in you know, my first job in high school, I was a candy striper. So I was the very first person that people would see coming into the hospital. And by the time I got to college, I was the NCAA announcer in person announcer for men's basketball and women's basketball, as well as on air announcer. And I did an internship at the White House and I ran a nonprofit and I ran a for profit, you know, startup that was in tech. And I was a professor. And, and so I had had all of these diverse experiences just pursuing my own interests. And so that sort of gave me the confidence to know that I knew about the ideas of multiple sectors and multiple industries. I knew about the personality types. I knew about the cultural expectations that each one of them took, the public sector, private sector, you know, nonprofit sector, sports sector. And I was able to be based on my experiences and based on the many identities I developed within each of those experiences, I was able to essentially sort of say, I have something unique to say because my worldview is so much broader than somebody who's only gone down one path. I used to think of it as a limitation. I used to think of it as, oh, I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. But the reality is you can be a master of some trades, but also a jack of all trades. You can do both, that there's not a trade-off. And I realized that, yes, I was a jack of all trades, but my thing that I offer folks is my ability to communicate in simple terms the best of what those industries were or the best of another industry that they might want to know more about. So as an example, I first started out advising advice to NFL players. This was 2012-ish, give or take. And these folks were retired. It was strange seeing retired people in their late 20s because I was then in my late 20s. <laughs> so it was always kind of a little strange, except they had a lot more money. And they were looking to really get into the startup world. 
and I had, I had a startup and I'd raised a bunch of money for that. And so I sort of took my background in sports and interacting with athletes and other things to sort of think about what kind of metaphors, what kind of stories, what kind of lessons can I relate to them based on the world they're coming from? And how can I blend that with my knowledge of startups, raising money, of hiring people, the technical process of company formation and those types of things. And so it sort of happened that way organically. It was not planned. It was just an introduction from a friend saying, hey, I've got some NFL friends. You should talk to them. You have a startup. That's what they want to do. And that's kind of what started it. And and over time, it just sort of happened organically like that, where folks say, I want you to meet this person who, you know, who has all of these celebrity fitness clients, or I want you to meet and advise them, or I want you to meet this person who, you know, is a Forbes columnist. And it was never something that I actively went out and said, I want these types of clients, these types of people. So I wasn't really ever a coach per se. It was just something I wanted to sort of share as a, as a teacher mm -hmm. in, in some ways. And so that's kind of how all of that started. But I think if you're trying to advise people, regardless of whatever area you're advising them in, you should probably first experience that and then think about the lessons you learned from that and think about how can you communicate those lessons in an extremely easy and simple to understand way. It's interesting because we've all seen those amazing players like Magic Johnson, who, I mean, this guy is prime time. This guy was the showstopper. When he became a coach, you're like, whoa, what happened? And we've all we've seen that with so many other athletes in basketball as well as other sports where they're amazing players. But as coaches, they're not at the levels as they were as players. And on the flip side, we see people who weren't that great of players like Phil Jackson and but nevertheless were amazing coaches. And I think it's because you have to have an ability to communicate and to teach. Teaching is an ability. It's a gift or it's something, at least a skill that you can hone. And so I would say for anybody, experience what it is you're trying to advise people for, but also hone and master the gift. For me, I love language, I love communication. And so it was just easier to be able to, to simplify. But I also think too, it was a lesson that I learned from a, a ninth grade English teacher, because back then I would always try to use those $27 million fancy words to impress her and with my essays. And, and she would always send back my paper just marked up, why use this word we can use a much smaller word yeah, and just i plain english words. yeah <laughs> i was thinking four letter words for her but i mean she's just, just used something simpler and i remember thinking about that and thinking about one of my favorite authors isaac asimov the author of the foundation series he's he wrote over 400 500 books when he was alive and that was his approach too he said uh, my goal is to be as simple as possible so i can reach as many people as possible and i think when you have clients You've got to be simple. It's got to be where a fourth grader can understand. Mm -hmm. Even if these people have multiple PhDs and MDs and are the smartest folks in the world, break it down. Because if you can't break it down, maybe your thinking isn't as clear as it could be. So keep honing, keep sharpening until it gets down to that element where you can explain it in a way where people just get it. Yeah, makes simple. sense. And I guess all these lessons then, all these experiences and conversations gelled for you in the writing and publication of the book, 48 yeah. Laws of Happiness. Yeah, absolutely. And I have my book here because why not do a shameless self-promotional 48 Laws of Happiness right here, Secrets Revealed for Becoming Happiest You. And it's interesting because for this particular book, I it wasn't something where I really intended to write a book that was nearly 500 pages. I didn't intend to really write something that was as mass market as it was. It was just from a simple desire of 
I know I look around people around me and I, I just saw so much unhappiness. And I remember I was, this is when I was transitioning to entertainment and more inter, you know, communication and other things. And I remember I was on set one time, I was cast for a role and the director said, you're too happy, stop being so happy. But he was angry about it. And I, and I was like, oh, is there such things being too happy? Maybe I'm like the Lego guy from the movie. There's a little too happy <laughs> naturally. And, and so I remember thinking about all of those different things, just seeing unhappy people, being accused of being too happy, wanting to write something and then all kind of came together for this book. And when I started writing Mark, I just couldn't stop. And I wrote you know, the, the original manuscript in about, I wouldn't say 30 or 40 days, give or take, and I just couldn't stop writing. And I wanted to write it in a way that, you know, the book is broken into 48 chapters, 48 laws, seven different sections based on those, those laws. So say section one is all about mastering happiness in your mind and the various obstacles mentally we face in becoming happy. And then section two is on mastering, you know, your uh, you know, happiness in your emotions and ha mastering happiness in your relationships, in your workplace and your circumstances and so on and so forth. And I wanted to break it down where each chapter is focused on one obstacle people face and also the various scientific-based solutions that people can use to overcome those obstacles. Because I, I did read a few other happiness books before I, I wrote this one, and they're all just very general, and they're all sort of like, you can do it, and they it didn't really seem to be grounded in, in people's everyday problems. Yeah, I think that's why I wanted to ask. I mean, obviously, the bookshelf is full of self-help books. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you probably thought to yourself, why do we need another book on mm -hmm. happiness? But mm -hmm. you took a different approach, didn't you? What On reflection, why mm -hmm. do you think this book is different? Oh, absolutely. So I think one is more accessible than the others. I think it's the it's scientific. So everything that's in the book is based on research that I didn't do or 80 pages of footnotes. Just to give an example, everything is backed up by, by science. And it's really about these specific step-by-steps -step you can take to become happier. So regardless of whether you have a lot of happiness or a little bit of happiness, you can always get happier. And so I remember I would always get frustrated when I was younger. People would say, you can just choose to be happy if you choose it in your mind. And I'm like, well, how the heck do I choose it in my mind to be happy? Where's the roadmap? Where's the GPS? Where's the guidebook? People need a flashlight. And so I wanted to make a specific flashlight for folks that where they could actually you know, use it, but also skip around. So maybe they're really strong in their relationships, but they're not happy at work. Or maybe they're happy at work, but they're not really strong emotionally because they're trying to deal with issues there. Or maybe they're happy with those things, but the world is jacked up and they can't be happy because they're watching so much cable news and how can you be happy with what's going on? And so I wanted to break it down where people could sort of choose their own adventure in the sense of you, you don't have to read it chronologically in order, you just can say, okay, well, I'm struggling with this issue in my mind, maybe this issue in a relationship or this issue with a coworker, and they could jump around based on whatever obstacles that they were facing. And these are the common obstacles common to people in our country, people in civilization in general. And so I wanted to really make it where they can choose what they needed at the time and also get specific step-by-steps for how to overcome, you know, whatever obstacles mm -hmm. that they're facing. Uh, terrific. Dr. Rob, I wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing a short excerpt of one oh. of these laws from your oh, book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting. Let me kind of, I, I was just going to say, I just flipped over to uh, to chapter one in the book. And the title is, Happiness Begins the Moment You Accept Yourself Unconditionally. 
and there's a quote and the quote says what self-acceptance does is open up more possibilities of succeeding because you aren't fighting yourself along the way and i'll just read a, a couple of a couple of sentences here and it starts by saying you're not an accident you're created with exactly the right looks the right personality and the right nationality you're created with the right intelligence the right emotions and the right talents you're created to be the perfect version of yourself you're not meant to be a carbon copy of anybody else and the more you accept yourself as the person you're originally designed to be warts and all the more relief and satisfaction you'll experience in your life and what's interesting about this mark is that i started with this particular chapter because 85% of people struggle with not feeling good enough about themselves. And it's their looks, or they don't think they're smart enough, or they're rich enough, or they don't think they're accomplished enough, they don't think they have as many cool experiences, they don't like their social media feed compared to other, a whole litany of things. And so I want to start the book based on the common theme that we all believe we're not good enough for this reason or that reason. That's why so many people strive. And usually, the, the not feeling good enough mark breaks down into three sections and it's outlined in, in chapter one. The first one is we sort of see ourselves as a moper. So we're not good enough. So that means we're Debbie or Donald Downers, nothing's ever right, glasses half empty, and we just sort of very pessimistic, cynical, and negative. And that's how we view life. That's our worldview. And that's one way we don't feel good enough. Well, nothing ever good will happen to me. So therefore, I'm not going to try. So that's one way. A second way, which is a category I fell in is a, a group that I call being a peacock. So we're trying to show off our intelligence or our spouses or our money or our accomplishments or all of our promotions. We're striving, we're goal-oriented. We justify with all the self-help books and all the goals, all the or positive orientation. We're gonna do this, conquer this. We're gonna be Alexander the Great Junior, all of these sorts of things. And what happens is it's still a lot of times for most people that I've encountered, particularly celebrities and athletes, it's basically them trying to undercover, cover up for this wound they have of not feeling good enough. And, and so I, I always say to them, I am a recovering peacock with peacock tendencies. <laughs> still try to rein it in because, you know, it, it, it can kind of come out like the little whack-a-weasel weasel at uh, Chuck E. Cheese. And then the third section is sort of on the what I call the escape artists. So people who aren't happy, who don't feel good enough. And so they escape through binge watching television, they escape through drugs, through alcohol, through sort of extreme hobbies, activities, those sorts of things where if they don't do those things, they can't be happy. And oftentimes they find other people who escape with them in those things. And so a lot of times we use being a moper, being a peacock or being an escape artist as a substitute for happiness instead of trying to sort of say, I'm valuable because I exist. I'm valuable because I'm, I'm, I'm here as a person, I'm loved, and I don't need to be anybody or do anything to be any more valuable than if I, everybody knew my name and everybody knew that I was a billionaire and everybody knew that I had accomplished everything because a lot of times those things are really empty. When people look back you know, on their deathbeds, they really, they don't regret sort of, you know, they, they regret being pessimistic. They regret trying to show off too much. They regret trying to do all these wild and crazy things that in the end, most of the time left them feel, feeling empty. Good so that's just, that's just kind of a quick. Well, I love that synopsis of those three categories. And I probably have, uh, at least I could say I have a peacock feather collection. So maybe the recovering <laughs> you and me both, brother. word that you underlined there, I could relate to that. So turning the page a little bit, if I could use that metaphor, but from the actual content development, the writing, 
to the maybe publication, dissemination, in your mm -hmm. case, even broadcast and film, what sort of connections did it mm -hmm. take for you? And what sort of tools and channels have you explored to really get your work out? I think one of the things we like to explore in this podcast is not only developing that creative muscle you've been talking mm -hmm. about, but also mm -hmm. it does take that sort of business side to get mm -hmm. the work out there, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. And I think for me, it always starts with creating a very high quality product. And, and so I have a process called 222. And so usually in the morning, I'll get up and I'll do two hours of meditation and working out in the morning, and then two hours of reading and two hours of writing. And so that puts me in peak position to be able to write, produce and create and everyone has their own process. And so then, like you said, then the, the billion dollar question is, how the heck do I get it seen before people? And, and I think that that just requires being sort of using the network you have that's available to you. And so I always start with friends and family who may be interested in the topic. And it's not always easy. I'm sure you may have encountered this. I know for The Fortless of Happiness, each chapter also features individual personalized stories. And I reached out to friends and family and those jokers would not respond back and everything else they'd respond back to. But the moment you ask them to, to either contribute a story or help market it, people went straight ghost mark they just like where are you i see you on facebook i see you on instagram you're right. responding to the other stuff but what about this thing and so but you know you start there and you only really need a core group of really committed eight, eight or ten folks sometimes more who will be evangelists for your work and so i think it's starting there with your friends and your family people that you know go to bat for you who will sort of say, hey, I'll post this for you on social media. Hey, I will email this out to my network. Hey, I'll make a strategic introduction to other folks. I think that's kind of a, a first step. And then I think the, the next step is sort of designing maybe games or incentives or, 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 or giveaways so that those people can have more incentives to share case with their network as well as with your own network. And then I think depending on your budget or if you have no budget, Sort of go into professionals. They think there's nothing that beats somebody who really is well versed in knowing how to market a book or market a movie or market a product. And again, depending on your budget, you can get different levels of this. And and I've seen different levels of it. But you know, I think for most people, starting with friends and family and being able to use incentives and ideas like giveaways to encourage people to sort of engage with your product is probably the easiest and the simplest way. And, and, you know, so that's kind of kind of a starting base. I think also too, reaching out to reporters as well, reporters who may want to report on it, more even bloggers, for example, you know, and you know, mommy bloggers, they're a big influential network, maybe reaching out to them, depending on ones that might blog about your particular issue, in my case, happiness or other people's cases, different things. So I think that can be a good way. And of course, influencers through social media, some of them, Will help, but I'd have a I'd have a caveat for that. Not necessarily just influencers who have built millions of followers, but maybe those who have 10,000, 15,000. So they're not quite sort of charging for their projects or products or product placements, but they're still out there. They're still getting regularly several thousand interactions. So if you say, "Hey, I'm going to choose 10 influencers that maybe have 10 to 15,000 each," that's a hundred thousand person audience. Maybe you'll engage with 10,000 of them, and maybe you know in terms of when they post your product or your your creativity your creative work and then going from there people can just kind of start to you know see it and then maybe it starts to spread from mm -hmm. there and so it's just really being 
you know, just being smart about it and using what you have that's close to you and without yeah, good advice. Thing. Well, Dr. Rob, you've also been very forthcoming that, you know, even though we know you now as an author of 48 Laws of Happiness, as is sometimes the case, tragedy was mm. part of the story that led you to this point. I wondered if you could share a little bit about that life story that led you yeah. to your calling here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because especially as the happiness guy or one of the happiness guys, that people just assume that my circumstances were always great. Exactly. That, oh, he was, he's got a PhD and he's in film, he's celebrities and he must have famous parents and he must be well connected and everything just goes great for him. And there's so much luck. And I mean, I've heard people say this to me and I said, my story is the exact opposite of what you think it was. And I just choose not to let trauma or drama sort of infiltrate my soul to the point where it weighs it down. And so I think for me, I, it was more so the fact that when I left college, when I got out of college, and I'm the first in the family to graduate from college, that sort of life story, but I was not expecting the type of crucible experiences that I went through that helped shape the decisions I made to become a creative, but also decisions I made to sort of just be my own person and to be authentic and to be happy. And so you know, one big experience for me was I was living in downtown Los Angeles at the time on Sunset Boulevard or Sunset and Figueroa. And I was crossing the street going right on foot, walking through a crosswalk and a car came to make a right hand turn. And I turned around and I was like, you know, please slow down because they're going fast. And as I turned around, a car came from the left and hit me. And I went into the, the, the windshield over the car, smacked the pavement, blood is gushing down my face. I'm not feeling any teeth up front here. And there are cars that are oncoming on Sunset Boulevard. And so it's interesting because, and this is almost gonna sound like a chicken soup style story. I, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm crazy or that I'm trying to be off putting. I felt this hand reach down and pull me up to get me to my feet. And there was nobody around. I said, okay, that's strange. Four, four men happened to stop their car, saw the, the, the accident. They happened to have clean cloths and medical gauze on them. And they ran over to me and they started patching up until the ambulance came. And the ambulance came and I went to the ER and I, I guess I passed out and I, they wrapped my hand like a mummy and, and I woke up with all sorts of IVs in my arms. And, and I remember asking what happened to me. And the doctor said, well, you know, you, you, you how do I look? You had multiple lacerations on your face, you have a skull fracture, it's going to be very expensive. And I looked at them with this incredible moment of mind over matter, this incredible moment of faith. Uh, I said, no, I don't. I don't have a skull fracture. I don't have lacerations. And, or I'm not going to get scars from it. And I'm not going to pay for this. And they looked at me and said, this guy is absolutely out of his mind on whatever we put him on. And I remember six weeks later, I went back after they, and they took off the, the little mummy mask they had for me. And I said, Doc, how do I look? And she said, you have a lovely face. And I said, hallelujah. And then I went to the neurologist, and the neurosurgeon, and they were looking at my brain scans. I said, hmm, hmm. And they called down to whoever did the, the, the diagnostic. And they said, this young man doesn't have a skull fracture. You misdiagnosed him. And they went to the back, consulted with each other, came back 10 minutes later and said, this is all gratis. I said, what does that mean? I said, it's all in the house. And I remember thinking to myself, well, yes, this is a chicken soup for the soul kind of story, but also that I was spared. My life was spared for a reason and for a purpose in a very dramatic way. 
not everyone has these dramatic stories, but many do. And I knew that I had to be true to my calling, which was really sort of helping to educate and empower people through media, whether it be books or movies or other things, and that I can't be so strategic and smart in terms of trying to work this corporate nine to five as a professor in this type of context that I have to take the leap of putting myself out there and opening myself up for criticism, opening my ideas up for scrutiny, opening all of those things up, which so many people try to guard themselves from, because it can be difficult to jump into that and, and get criticized. I, I, you know, it's interesting because if you ever ask like a Spielberg, Spielberg type, or you ever ask a giant author and they you sort of say, how do you deal with negative reviews? And they'll say, oh, don't read them after they've already gotten millions of positive reviews. But you know, it's funny, Mark, I'm not sure if you, you this, this happened with any of your books or, or, or creative works. What's funny is I remember looking at my first review on Amazon and it came in at like three in the morning. I was like, oh, I need to read it right now. What do they say? What do they say? And no matter how much advice I knew not to, oh, you don't pay attention to these things. Of course, three in the morning, I saw a review come in and I'm, that's the first thing I'm doing. I'm not waiting until seven. I'm reading it on the spot in bed. And I think I was, and of course it was very positive. So thank goodness for that. But it was one of those things where taking the leap of faith to go to the fullness of my calling was something that that accident sort of spurred on. <clears throat> and, and so I left the comfort and security of a professorship at a major university in California to go pursue these things. And professors, being a professor is the greatest part-time work anybody can ever have. Don't let them fool you. I mean, you're working six months out of the year, a couple of days a week. It's, it's a cushy job talking about the thing you love the most. And, and so I don't know why so many of them are so, so mean and like, it's a, it's a, it's a nice <laughs> gig, but it still wasn't the gig that I was supposed to have. Well, because... you described it now, you know, why it's a calling and mm. listeners, I think now that you've heard Dr. Rob's story, you know, why this is not just, Hey, I'd like to be a happiness author you know, and see how many books I could sell, that it's really a life purpose to help people uh, transform, isn't it? Absolutely. And the university, they're like, that's not your job. Your job is to do research and pull in grant dollars. And maybe you teach and doesn't matter if you teach that well. I remember I was a very highly rated professor. And I remember other professors being dismissive. They're like, oh, he's so young. And that's why they, the kids like him, because they can identify with him. And I was like, no, I actually like these kids and I actually want to teach them something and help empower them to transform and grow their souls. It's, it's not about you know, me being relatable or likable. And, and so, but that was not the refrain most of the professors had. Teaching was kind of a nuisance. And I said, I can't exist in an environment that doesn't encourage me to try to invest everything I can into building these beautiful children. Well, they're not children, I guess they're adults, but I, see, I saw them as kids even though I wasn't that much older than them and, and growing them. And I, I just, I, I couldn't do that with my life. I had to do something more. And mm -hmm. I also needed variety too. Like I, I couldn't direct movies as a professor. I couldn't write a variety of, of topics. I had to stick in one thing and that would have drove me bonkers to have to do that for 40 years or however long. <laughs> That's right. Stay, stay in your lane as the professor yeah. instead of exploring these other roads. Well, there's so many more uh, things that we'll have to have you come back and tell us about some of these other creative projects. My guest is Dr. Rob Carpenter. Uh, Dr. Rob, where do we find you and learn about all the things that you're working on? 
Oh, absolutely. So just go feel free to go to my website, drrob.tv. I know I'm still a little bit old school, but there are hundreds of resources available there, articles and, and all sorts of things that you can get in touch with me that way as well. And fun articles. There are the articles like, what does a Lion King, King teach you about being brave? And so things along those lines, top life lessons from celebrities like Shaq and, and LeBron, James and folks like that. So it's, a, it's sort of a, a way, an oasis of, of, of sorts to really help and grow and empower people in a fun, entertaining way. Yeah, well, we'll first certainly go there. And uh, good luck on all your other projects like Harvard yeah. Health TV, like oh, your you. upcoming book series, The Icons and Legends, and even your film, American Dropout. That'll be the subject of a whole podcast <laughs> right there. We'll have to come back Absolutely. and tell us about the film. But for Absolutely. now, I just really appreciate you telling your story and sharing this new book, The 48 Laws of Happiness. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank Absolutely. You. And listeners, come back again next time. Our next episode, we're going to continue our around the world journey. We like to talk to creative professionals in every corner of the world, but also in every corner of the world of creativity to see how they get inspired, how they organize their ideas and how they gain the confidence and connections to launch their work out into the world. So I'm Mark Stenson. Come back again and we'll continue to unlock your world of creativity. Bye for now. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and thepeaceroom.love. We've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only 99 cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer. Our podcast is supported by Adobe and the Adobe Creative Cloud, the world's best creative app and services, so you can make almost anything you can imagine wherever you're inspired. We use Adobe to help make this podcast, using Audition, Premiere Rush, InDesign, and more. So join the creative community with the Adobe Creative Cloud, and let's make something better unlocking your world of creativity.